while I got Michael Zweig on the phone. Michael is with us now. I just want to say a word about who he is. Uh, he is an economist, a labor historian, a uh, professor emeritus at Stony Brook University, an activist and author of numerous books and articles. His uh, couple of his books include The Working Class Majority, America's Best Kept Secret, and another one, What's Class Got to Do With It? Professor Zweig is also active in his union, United University Professions, Local 2190 of the American Federation of Teachers. Michael, thank you very much for joining us on WPKN tonight. There sure. Let me just say one thing about that in- intro. Yeah. I am at what is sometimes called Stony Brook University, but it is the State University of New York at Stony Brook. Ah, the State okay. University of New York is a statewide public education, higher education system, and it's been in New York for 70 years, and gradually there's an attempt uh, to dismantle it and to hide its public association. So Stony Brook University, no one would know that that is the State University of New York. It's a public institution. It is not a private university like Syracuse University, for example, Mm. or Rochester Institute of Technology or Rochester University. Those are public, private institutions. Stony Brook University is part of the State University of New York, and I'm sorry to say that it is commonly hidden now, and it's. I want to just call that out because it is so emblematic of the attempt to hide and destroy the public sector in this country that uh, it seems to me to be worth noting. Thank you for that, Michael. Good to uh, have that clarified. Well, tonight, with Michael Zweig's help, we'll attempt to answer this question. Can labor play a leading role in forging a broad-based anti-fascist popular front to combat the grave threat to our democracy posed by extreme right-wing and openly fascist elements which are gaining power in our society. And that is, of course, uh, the most obvious and emblematic uh, example of that is was the insurrection, quote-unquote, that uh, occurred at the uh, Capitol in which uh, thousands of people armed to different levels, broke into the Capitol, smashed and destroyed things, threatened lawmakers, and even threatened or called out for the hanging of Mike Pence. That, that was just, I think, a symbolic gesture that covers over the, what, what is brewing underneath, which I think is a, probably a lot more frightening than that little theatrical nightmare that took place on January 6th, 2021. Michael, this past weekend, you chaired a forum called Multiplying Labor's Power, Building Connections with the Environmental Peace and Social Justice Movements. And that featured labor organizers from around the country of different uh, generations, races and genders. So tell us about that forum and what was the impetus behind it? The impetus was to try to get uh, some public discussion of the need for labor uh, unions and working people to extend their horizons beyond just the immediate terms and conditions of their contracts and to have labor step out and play a role in the broader movements 
together with the broader movements that are percolating up in the society. That uh, working people cannot transform power relations in this country just on their own uh, through their unions. It's a much bigger social phenomenon that we're dealing with, with this rise of corporate power and the rise of the power of capital in the last 60 years in this country. It's been devastating, or 50 years, devastating for working people and for the environment and for racial justice and for, and for, and for. So uh, our goal was to highlight and showcase real-world examples of union locals that have taken up other uh, social movements. So we had, for example, uh, a couple of guys from the uh, Steelworkers uh, Local 675 in Long Beach, California. They're in a refinery, a uh, petroleum refinery, and they are working, their local is working for climate justice and for uh, reasonable uh, fossil fuel uh, phase outs and so on. So how did it happen that uh, that a refinery worker's local is taking this up? How does it happen that uh, a local of public employees in North Carolina that's part of the U- uh, UE, United Electrical Workers, how did it happen that they take up racial justice questions as a union matter? Not just say, yeah, yeah, we think that's good if you want to do it, go over there and join a civil rights group, but really take it on as a union uh, function. And we had examples, from, as you say, from around the country of people who are really doing that work, giving some history and background to why they're doing it, how they got involved, how their locals got involved, and then to carry all of that into the June 18th uh, upcoming uh, Poor People's and, and the Low Wage Workers Assembly in March on Washington and to the polls that um, the Poor People's Campaign and Reverend Barber and Reverend Theo Harris are organizing. So we wanted to showcase these particular struggles in actual unions that are doing the actual work, but then carry that in a united way towards this uh, rally in D.C. on June 18th, which will, in fact, bring together people from environmental movements, environmental justice, the peace movement, the labor movement, poor people's movements, civil rights and racial justice movements, all are going to be in that march in D.C. in one coordinated voice to challenge the powers that be in this country. And so we wanted to uh, have this webinar as something which would showcase that work and build for uh, June 18th. What I'm wondering is, as you said, there were, I think, six or seven speakers at on that uh, webinar, and they represented fairly interesting and broad spectrum of labor locals around the country. But can you give us a sense of how broad-based this kind of approach to organizing and activism is in the in the union movement in general? I think it's fairly limited in, in scope. There are not huge numbers of locals or central labor councils or state federations of labor or the AFL that actually actively encourage their members to go out and, as union business, take up peace, take up uh, uh, civil rights and and, uh, black liberation struggles. They're not that many. 
there are a number of union locals that uh, support those things to give money or they'll put out a statement or they'll sign something. But to actually mobilize their members, uh, that's not a very common thing. Of course, in the labor movement today, it's not very common for the union leadership to mobilize their members over their own issues, hmm. let alone going out into the larger world. How do these locals that are doing this work, how do they mobilize their members around these issues which are not directly uh, germane to their concerns as workers in a certain sector? Well, a lot of it is political education and just having the information and taking the time and the effort within the local to convey that information to their rank and file and have avenues for people to actually get involved. So uh, the steel workers, uh, for example, in this refinery, well, they're not just workers in a refinery. They're also just human beings who live in a society who understand that there are limits to how much the world and the planet can tolerate fossil fuels. And so rather than get uh, sort of in the way of change and just get crushed by whatever comes and whatever is implemented, their idea is, well, what do we do? What, how should we transition away from fossil fuels? What will happen in this refinery? What else can we do? And to take it up as something which does affect them, but can't be solved at the level of the plant or just with their own employer. And, uh, you know, this in, in North Carolina, the UE has a long history of, of anti-racist and, and uh, working class solidarity across race lines. And it was one of the reasons why it was purged out of the um, uh, AFL-CIO in the 1950s, uh, because it had that anti-racist, uh, <clears throat> sort of more class-conscious outlook, and it's kept that over those over those years. So the union, again, through a lot of internal political education, can and does mobilize its members to go and take on, in North Carolina, for example, uh, racial justice questions and voting rights questions uh, as union business because what all these different locals understand, including my own as an AFT local here in New York, we cannot solve our problems only in our own bailiwick. Our problems are pressed on us from the larger society. And until we address that larger society, understand more closely how it works, and then understand where our allies are and how do we build these connections so that we have a sort of, uh, if not a, a single movement, a movement of movements that has its eye on shaking the powers that be to the core. And that's what we're trying to do. And different locals have different degrees of understanding and uh, implemented in various ways along different issues. We're speaking with Michael Zweig. He's an economist and labor historian who's joining us tonight to talk about uh, the idea of labor leading a broad-based coalition against extreme right-wing and openly fascist elements in our society, which are threatening, I, th I think, our democracy at its core. Yeah, but just a second, Richard. Before we go further, let me take a, a look at that word leading, because uh, you have <laughs> said more than once uh, this evening that the question at hand is whether the labor movement can lead this thing. Well, that is the question, right? <laughs> yeah, well, we are so far from yeah. having a labor movement that it can lead anything like it. 
Yeah. The, right now, what we're uh, at a stage where labor can participate. All we want now is for labor to enter into that discussion and enter into those relationships with these other movements. The idea that uh, you know labor was going to come in and because we're you know the working class is the majority of people in the country, and the working class is going to lead everything, and so step aside, we're at the you know we're leading, we're at the head of the table. That's not at all even close to what is possible or what we have in mind. Okay, let me just mention that you're listening to WPKN in Bridgeport, 89.5 FM, and streaming online at WPKN.org. Well, you said something very interesting there. You said just because the working class is the majority of the country, as you, one of your books... Uh, <laughs> yes, it's, it's called the working class majority for a reason. Yeah, so I guess... The thing is that that suggests that there is the potential for labor to, assuming that organizing would continue to a level where a majority of, of the working class was organized into, into unions, labor has the potential to actually have the power to really be a leading participant in a, in a movement that we've described here tonight. But what about in the past when, when labor was ascendant before the Red Scare of the 1950s decimated right, right. unions and, and, and then the craziness that happened in the 60s and 70s, uh, not to mention the air controller strike that Reagan wiped out and, and, and killed that union. But what about when labor was at its height, starting in the 30s and, and up in, through the 40s and early 50s? Well, labor certainly uh, was part of, and at that time, of a central figure, a central player in the social movements that were shaking the country for power. That was, however, in the context of Jim Crow and a labor movement which, except for the CIO unions, and even not all of them, uh, the AFL unions uh, American Federation of Labor, the craft unions, the trade, the trade unions coming out of the building trades and so on, they were horribly racist. They were not at all close to being uh, in alliance with, let alone to lead, the uh, civil rights, you know, any civil rights movement or black liberation movement or women's movement. Uh, so labor at that time had a long uh, and, and very militant history for organizing uh, its own members in conflict with their own employers, but often inter intercut with, with racist uh, organizing and racist uh, exclusion of uh, African-American workers from the campaigns or from the benefits or from the victories. So uh, if we look back at those at those days, uh, they're not the golden days that we're trying to re uh, recreate here by right. any means. Understood. Understood. Well put. And I think there was it's important to make the distinction between the industrial unions, CIO uh, unions and the craft unions, which uh, remained, I think, highly racist right up through the 60s. And I remember images of construction workers beating up <laughs> peace marchers in New York City. So they were reaction. It was a period of reaction that swept through the unions. You had people like George Meany, who was a, really a right winger, 
that's really an important thing to notice is that the, the difference between the craft unions and the industrial sector, and I, I wonder how that works out today. Do you see that distinction? And as we see this upsurge in union organizing amongst young people who are taking the bull by the horns and actually forming their own unions, how does, how does that play out today, that distinction that I mentioned? Well, I think that the uh, industrial unions have uh, been very greatly reduced in their number and their influence in the country. The auto workers, the steel workers, packing house workers, uh, printing trades, uh, those uh, industrial workers, uh, miners and so on, are uh, very small in relation to the overall uh, labor force and certainly to to the uh, labor movement itself. The big increase in the last 50 years in organized labor has been in public sector workers, uh, among teachers and uh, um, sanitation workers and police and fire and and, uh, uh, bureaucrat, you know, offices uh, that uh, public service workers work in. That's where a lot of the union growth has been in the last 50 years to to somewhat, in a marginal way, out, uh, sort of compensate for the decline in private sector and industrial unions. But uh, you have a situation now in which the civil rights movement and the women's movement has really it had an influence in society as a whole and in the labor movement as a whole. So that unions these days, industrial unions and public sector unions, are, have, have nowhere near the kind of racist uh, elements and racist tendencies in their uh, organization and in their activities that we had 50, 70 years ago. That is somewhat uh, moderated. doesn't mean that everything is peachy keen and everything is fine, but it does mean that uh, labor has a clearer path now, I think, to having working relations with other social movements um, without having to uh, hang its head in shame. Well, we need to remind people and underscore this uh, Poor People's Campaign March, which is going to take place in Washington, D.C. on June 19th or June June, 18th? June 18th. It's a Saturday, uh-huh. and it's the Poor People's and uh, let me see if I got it here. Poor People's and Low-Wage Workers Assembly and Moral March on Washington and to the polls. That's a mouthful, but uh, (laughs) it's uh, organized by the Poor People's Campaign, which is headed by Reverend William Barber and Reverend Liz Theo Harris. And they are trying to get in states all around the country. I think they have operations now in 45 states. Um alliances of different social movement groups that can mobilize and address the conditions of poverty and the conditions of the poor and the power and to confront as a political force and as a moral force uh, the corporate powers that are on the country. And uh, that's why it's a moral march on Washington and it's uh, for the Poor People's Campaign uh, a national call for moral revival. The thing that they are trying to talk about is the relationship between the public policies that we have across the board in many different issues and the moral compass that we have 
in finding the priorities. So I think that those uh, efforts deserve a lot of support, and uh, they work. The Poor People's Campaign works around the issues of uh, – it goes back to Martin Luther King and his uh, great uh, triplets of uh, racism, militarism, and poverty. And the Poor People's Campaign has added in um, environmental devastation and uh, moral reorientation. Uh, and so that's what this June 18th thing is about, is to bring people down to D.C. in that attitude. And we in the labor movement are going to be there. A lot of unions have supported it. Some unions are building for it. My union is building for it. It has a bus going down, 1199, I think, has 30 buses going or 50 buses from, from the northeast. Uh, that uh, local 1199, that's hospital workers in the private sector in New York and the, up in New England. So there is this uh, opportunity to go down to D.C. on June 18th and be part of this assembly of uh, people from all different, you know, we used to say walks of life, and here we can say, uh, you know, runs of movements uh, that will be there. Hmm. And labor has a place to be in there, and what we were trying to do with this webinar is to uh, highlight some of the activity that uh, is going on in the labor movement, which which is consistent with and ought to be represented in a labor presence in D.C. on June 18th. I'm going to be down there, and I know a lot of people from my union will be, and tons of people from 1199 and from all SEIU and from here and from there and hither and thither, and uh, it's going to be a, a good time will be had by all, I'm sure. <laughs> Michael Zweig, uh, it's been great talking to you tonight on WPKN. Michael Zweig, economist, labor historian, professor emeritus at Stony Brook University of the oh, New York. That's a State University of New York, sir. <laughs> well, well okay, Brook. so where do you stick that in when you're saying Stony Brook University? So, uh, you don't say Stony Brook University. Ah, that, uh, that's the substitute. That's That looks like Syracuse University. It's okay. just another private school. It is the State University of New York, or SUNY, at, at Stony, Stony Brook. Brook. Okay, good, good. Just like there's SUNY at Old Westbury, SUNY at Binghamton, SUNY in Buffalo, SUNY in Oneonta. There's like 30 different SUNY campuses that are part of the State University of New York four-year university center system. And it is a state system, and I think that it's so important when people see in the newspaper that we have Stony Brook University scientists or Stony Brook University sociologists have done a survey and they've come up with these interesting results. People should know that that is a public institution that's doing that. That's not a private college. That's not Mm. NYU. Right. That's not Columbia. That's not Yale. That's the State University of New York at Stony Brook. <laughs> I'm going to carve that on my forehead tonight, so I don't forget. <laughs> well, it doesn't have to be there as long as we get straight as right. to uh, what the tremendous power of language is to disappear the public from the public. Yeah, it's I, just it's really astounding. You got it. I totally agree that it's it happens in so many different ways. I'll just mention one right to life for example is another way that uh, language is used to uh, com- yeah. completely twist the yep. realities. Yeah. 
Well, Michael, thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. Michael Zweig joined us tonight for this conversation. And, thank you very uh, much, Richard, and uh, have a good evening. Yeah, you too. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye. All right. And my name is Richard Hill. This is WPKN in Bridgeport.